Digital Gonzo, episode 92, dated Thursday the 2nd of August 2012. There's a storm coming. The Dark Knight Rises. You sound like you're looking forward to it. I'm adaptable. What are you? I'm Gotham's Reckoning. This is the last of 11 Batman reviews for Digital Gonzo, covering every significant screen outing. Next week, we close out our Batman season with a making-of Batman breakdown show, in which I will detail the production process, deconstruct my own work, and point out hidden Easter eggs accompanied by some of the people involved. It would be impossible to do a thorough review in the Gonzo style for this third and final film in the Dark Knight trilogy without heavy spoilers. So I will say now, go away and see this film, and then when you're done, come back to us straight away because we've got endgame material to discuss from the very start. In the Batcave with me once again for more super serious analysis. James Carter of Kane and Rince replacing Josh Garrity but I have it on good authority that he shares the same views. I'm not the cane and rinser you deserve, but I'm the only one you've got right now. These aren't the cane and rinsers you're looking for. Right. Neil Taylor of Game Burst and KDS 2.0 is back. Hello. And from Gonzo Planet, Jerome McIntosh. Hello. Paul Gibson. Hello. Sharon Shaw. Hello. And Akila Edwards. Hey. Again, if you haven't listened to it yet, download Digital Gonzo number 90, which is my first full-length audio play, Batman Breakdown. It's gotten universal praise and has received nearly a thousand downloads and YouTube views combined. But we can do so much more. Looking at the numbers, most of you have listened to it already, as my average download count per show is around the 500 mark right now. But if you all tell two friends, that's 1,500 listeners right there. And if I'm lucky, some of them will stay and head on over to the wonderful forums. Right off. 
I will say that this is an even more divisive film than Prometheus. There has been a shitstorm of negativity from disappointed fans to which it fell short of expectation. Some of them are in this room tonight. In contrast, there was the opposite of a shitstorm of defence from the... What's the opposite of a shitstorm? A shit shield? (laughs) (laughs) In contrast, there was a shit shield of defence from those who champion its finer points and aren't bothered by the possibly nitpicky elements that affect their critical opponents in this war for dominance on assessing the work of Nolan and company. Having had time to mull over my gut reaction and the writing and ranting of others, I have come to the conclusion that I don't sit comfortably in either camp. Nor am I on the fence about this film. It's my fourth favourite Nolan film after The Dark Knight, Batman Begins and The Prestige. It's my fourth favourite Batman film after The Dark Knight, Batman Begins and Under the Red Hood. It's an excellent film and by and large a crafted affair. It's also not without elements that tire, frustrate or annoy me, but intriguingly has enough strong points to put it higher on my Nolan list than Memento and Insomnia, which are superb films that don't annoy me in the slightest. The balance is just heavier at both ends, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I I know what you're trying to say, because I think this is a good film. I don't like it, but it's a good film. Okay. Um, I saw it for the fourth time today. <laughs> I will only see it four more times today. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I've been to see it four times, and I keep oh. getting different stuff from it each time. Um, so you spent, like, north of 30 quid on this thing. Trying to help um, Neil win a bet. Not, not <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. The steak was only £10. You could just have given him a tenner. <laughs> yes and no. Um, not quite that much, because I have the benefit of a student... Uh, All right. So, um, but I saw The Dark Knight five times. I would say that I slightly prefer The Dark Knight, but I think there's a lot to this, um, and the, the craft really appeals to me. Okay, Catwoman is one of my chief concerns, and I appear to be in the absolute minority with this one, since nobody has said anything less than positive about her inclusion. Except me. Except you. <laughs> you you feel roughly the same as me on this particular front, right? Possibly to a greater depth, but yes. Even more so. Why? Wow, okay. You have a whole gender issue at stake. Why? Wow. The yeah. Catwoman of the comics is mostly shallow and over-sexualized with little substance, conflict, or humanity behind her Mary Sue persona of perfect hair, nails, and acrobatics. And I am excluding the Catwoman focus stories like Selena's Big Score because I haven't read them. I haven't had a chance to read Deep Catwoman yet. Hathaway does her best with the script she was given, which perfectly captures the vacuous and glamorized pussy galore and comes off unsurprisingly like a Bond girl, a Pierce Brosnan Bond girl, not a Daniel Craig one. I mention high-heeled shoes as a point of contention here because I need to hold experts like Nolan to the same account as adolescents like Zack Snyder. In Watchmen, Silk Spectre 2 wears ridiculous stiletto heels, despite the fact that they are the least practical footwear for a crime fighter imaginable, with the following exceptions. Clogs, flip-flops, ice skates, clown shoes, and bunny slippers. I'd like to say, if you're adding clogs into there, you've not seen a Jackie Chan movie. Dude, as 
does he wear clogs? In I his... swear it's a Jackie Chan movie where he puts clogs on and kicks ass. But it's okay. Jackie Chan. He can do that. And, and you know what? I also take that thing back about flip-flops. I would rather attempt a backflip in flip-flops than stiletto heels. As every woman who's worn them will tell you, they are no good for running, jumping, fighting, sneaking, riding bat pods, and all the other things Catwoman does in abundance. The problem is that the filmmakers need to protect their actress, so every possible shot that doesn't need a direct focus on her heels, she's actually wearing flats and walking like she's in heels. In other words, Catwoman actually couldn't do these things in the costume she chooses. So why is she wearing them at all? Because it's sexy. And that is why her character sticks out like a sore thumb. In 2005, Nolan and company set out to show us a Batman that could really happen going to extraordinary lengths to stick to realism and make every element of his costume something that was carefully thought out and designed to be the best combined crime-fighting gear. With Catwoman, they could have looked to actual cat burglars, parkour runners, people who traverse cities and get in and out of tight spaces with grace, springy black sneakers, even short-heeled boots... A less obviously theatrical get-up, minus the cute ears. It seems like I'm being disproportionately finicky about less than a tenth of a percentile of the movie, but those heels are indicative of a greater issue, which is that this movie more than somewhat abandons its realistic intentions and ups the comic book aspect. But not the good ones. The shallow ones, based on spectacle and gloss. Selina's hair is never the slightest bit messy, even when Gotham has been under siege for months on end. It seems she still finds time to huddle in the ruin of an apartment, brushing her gorgeous locks and applying lipstick to that delectable face. I'm not ragging on Hathaway here either. The few times in the film where she is called upon to be vulnerable and afraid, or something less or more than smug... She manages it with ease. She's an accomplished actress. It's just that Catwoman is as deep and textured a character as Skeletor and fits into this world like an ape in kindergarten. I'm just going to open up the floor here on Catwoman. What did you guys think? Go ahead, Sharon. Well, wait, yeah, yeah, you, first. you first. You first. Do you want to well, <laughs> you see, the, the, I, I think it would be fair to say that Alex has probably summed up most of the points that that I would have made about her um, and about the way she's portrayed in the film. But yes, it's it's symptomatic of one of the main issues I have with female characters in a lot of films and in uh, Specifically superhero. superhero movies generally, yeah. The main issue that I have and what gets me really, really riled about it is that it's when when they've tried to make something which is not classically comic booky to suddenly do an about face for the sake of having um, a, a chick in tight pants it seems insanely cheap there's an over sexualization of her character her her entire being that when I have brought that up with a lot of people their response has been oh, well I don't see what the problem is because she's, that's the point. she's so great to but, look at. But that's like, the point. Ah, that, makes her, that makes her totally objectified. It doesn't matter that she has no character. It doesn't matter that she has no arc. It doesn't matter that she turns up playing a maid, playing a, practically a waitress, for crying out loud, and she's got those ridiculous stilettos on in the first scene she turns up in. You know what? I know you can't cat burgle in heels. You can't friggin' waitress in heels either. So it, it, there, is, there is no practicality to her at all and the whole 
skin-tight leather and boots was parodied in Jane Silent Bob Strikes Back. Yeah, yes. Miss Sissy, Chrissy and Justice. So that's it. It's it's done. Why go back to that? Well, you know when you said you can't wear dress and heels, I flash back to Triple X hey, where did, he points that out. Now? <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> Okay. In, tri- in Triple X, there's the scene in the diner where he, one of the clues he knows where something is up is there's a waitress in heels. Yeah, exactly. If Triple X knows this... Yes! In that documentary, you Triple X. think that Christopher Nolan, one of the most intelligent directors in the world, would know this? But apparently not. And It's, it's like it's, they farmed... It's just like with Arkham City, they farmed Catwoman out to a third-party dev team. When they've had the way Rachel was characterised, particularly in The Dark Knight... To throw that all away and to say, you know what, after all that... After they the don't necessarily throw it all away, but her inclusion no, they do. doesn't they, seem they throw away. No, 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 let me, let me finish the sentence. The Sorry, point okay. being that what they throw away is the notion that Bruce falls in love with Rachel because of who she is, because of the heart that she has, because she is trying to save Gotham in the, in the way that she knows how. That is why she's important to him. Why is Selina important to him? Because she's got a good ass. That's about it. There is nothing else. There is no interaction between them that suggests that these two people are supposed to be together. What's her moral standpoint? We don't know. She pulls a bit of a face when people are getting hit, but that's about it. And uh, uh, oh, and the lipstick. I know you said about the hair and, and the fact that, you know, Gotham falling apart, and yet she sometime, somehow has managed to get hold of whatever conditioner will keep her perfect. She is always immaculately made up. Where is she getting her lipstick from in this city that is falling into ruins? She steals it! Oh, it, it's just so frustrating. And, and the fact that, like I said, when a lot of people will look at it and go but I don't understand what the problem is. That's why it's so frustrating. It took me right out of the narrative. It took me right out of the story. Every time she was on screen, it it was like what was happening didn't matter because we are looking at Catwoman's arse. And it just, oh, it winds me up to hell because it, it wastes character interaction. It wastes plot point. It wastes time. She it wastes the opportunity to, to, for the she only time ever, do Catwoman in, in a realistic way. She did not need to be in that film. She lifted right out of that story. Her only purpose, her sole intended purpose, was to give Bruce somewhere to stick his cock at the end of the film. That was Jesus. it. That was it. That was oh. her whole point. Coming to a deleted scene near you. Oh. <laughs> anyway. Anyway, um, James, do you want to address the balance on this? Because we've ripped into this section of the film, and, and I, uh, I will say that I don't. I didn't watch the film and think, oh, why is Catwoman here? It's making me so furious. I did just think, sort of, okay, I really hope they do something with her. So in subsequent yeah. viewings, I'm going to be kind of sort of, yeah, okay, Catwoman, right, had, moving had on. Had I been you, Alex, I have to admit, I wouldn't have gone to Catwoman first. <laughs> <laughs> it was in the film first. But. Well, no, I just I wanted to address it because it's 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 symptomatic of an overarching issue. Okay, so James, do you want to address just yes. at least um, as soon uh, the high heels stand out? They really do. They make uh, a vague attempt to give them purpose because they have a serrated blade on the inner edge that she uses, um, but they 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 completely stand out. At, at first, I thought the scene where she attacks Daggett. Mm-hmm. That there's a sound that happens when she lifts her leg up that I to, like to springing out. To, it sounds like they were springing out, and I thought that's where they were going. But I, that was the first time I saw the film. I've seen it three times more. It's not. They are high heels. And um, I think the interesting thing is that 
I, I tend to be quite sensitive to this sort of stuff in mm-hmm. terms of being very uh, quick, perhaps, to, to be negative towards overly sexualized portrayals of women. Now, obviously, I'm coming at this from a male perspective, but in term, I, I tend to I wade in on Twitter or wherever well else. Sensitive to it, to be honest. <laughs> well, no, I, I'm, I'm like you. I tend to to be oversensitive to it when actually there's maybe not. It's not as bad as I think it is. And in so in this case, I was looking for it. I really was. I think the interesting thing is, yes, she's in a leather suit. Um, it doesn't appear to be like a, a jumpsuit in some cases. It appears to be like trousers and separate top. Which, At least she didn't have her tits on show like in Arkham yeah, City. Exactly. So uh, and and it's very different from the Michelle Pfeiffer aspect, which is really skin tight, uh, sort of. Um, what would you call it? Patent leather um, and, and super sexual, and spends the whole time licking and, and caressing it and all sorts. Of and making filthy uh, exactly atrocious as well. So I, I, I really the more I see it, I saw the Batman Returns the other day. I dislike yeah. um, her portrayal of Catwoman more and more. And Lyra was downright freaked out by her. Oh, she didn't get yeah. why this woman was smashing up yeah. her house. She 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 liked. The Joker. She liked Jack Nicholson's Joker more than Catwoman, by far. Mm. She got the Joker. Carry on, sorry. No, so I, I was expecting it, and when I saw the high heels, I thought, Ooh. the strange thing is that she's in the maid's outfit, which turns out to be this sort of um, disguise she's using so that she can slink out, slink out the party at the end mm-hmm. uh, in a sort of black dress. Um, if she's going to do that, she needs heels, but why wouldn't she have some cleverer way of wearing flats and then putting heels on at the end if she needs a disguise? Yeah. So, but I think the interesting thing is in other films, and we t- you mentioned Watchmen, you would have camera panning up from the heels all the way up the body of pick a character in all honesty. In, in Silk Spectre Two. But in, in most of these other films that were said, like superhero films, where you have that sort of thing, pick a character because it will start off at the sh- shoes, pan all the way up the body, making sure to linger just long enough on all the areas that are going to get. Yeah, teenage and young men interested. So they didn't do the Michael Bay. Whoa, lads! Look at that. (laughs) But that's the interesting thing is, um, you know, Sharon, you were talking about her ass being in the film. I didn't feel it. It was. I didn't notice any single focus on it, which begs the question: Why is she in that outfit with heels on anyway? If they're not going to exploit that almost you know there's it's a real discord to exploit as bobby kotek would say (laughs) well it's almost yeah exactly the bit where she's on the bike they very definitely the way the camera pans it's staring she's she leans down further than she needs to she sticks her backside up further than she needs to It, it just oh it yeah rather set my teeth on edge a little but yeah there's there's a real strange thing with her because there's a Dickensian theme running through all of this. And I, re- uh, I read someone comparing um, Selena Kyle in this to kind of an artful dodger with this bl- blonde-haired friend of hers being the Oliver Twist role. It, it seems odd, some of the choices they've made, when it would, you know, it would have been easier to have her just wearing flats. I, I think the, the fact that the costume's leather and black, it's not... It's not entirely skin tight, but it certainly is pretty close to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, could there, they have made a better decision? Probably, yes, I would say. It just seems like she's... My feelings on her are mixed. I think that um, there's there's a great moment when she's in the bat, which I'm sure we'll get to later, where she's just found out that what she wants more than anything, this clean slate, doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. And she portrays in a fairly rudimentary way, but pretty well, all, all told, 
the heartache she is feeling at this point because everything she has worked towards is gone and yet she hops out and refuses to let that come across so you very much see the side of her where she is keeping up airs and graces and is keeping up appearances if you like in order to not let people get the better of her and not feel vulnerable which clearly she has done in the past so I I think there is something to her and like I said, Sharon, I understand your sensitivity because I tend to err on your side as well. In this case, I think there's... It, it seems like there's mixed messages coming from that character is what I'd say. Mm. The, you were asking, Sharon, why they would dispense with Rachel and then put uh, Catwoman in to to no real effect, like, like Bruce, what is there about her that's particularly interesting? It's kind of the other way around. The whole film, Bruce is trying to bring Selina around to his way of thinking and actually say, look, I am prepared to do this much for these people. Uh, it's, to begin with, she starts, has to goad him about that. But once he's back on the horse, as it were, so when she kisses him at the end, it's, it's more of just a case of that he has emotionally pulled her over to his way of thinking. So I at least do get that, but they just did it in a very kind of straightforward way of well, if she kisses him, she must agree with him now. But just quickly, I would say uh, both times she kisses him, he doesn't actually kiss her. There's, and the first time round, he's, quite, I think, supposed to be quite taken aback about it. So um, she's made a comment immediately beforehand about what's in his pants other than his, his wallet. Mm-hmm. So clearly she's getting at that aspect of things. But I, I don't ever get the feeling in the film, certainly in the first half of the film, uh, and until right at the end, that he sees her as anything more than some like a curiosity almost Mm. Um, why is this woman who is so in trouble with the police going to the lengths to to lead the life she does instead of just running you know instead of just getting out so Mm. Um, but yeah it's very I just wanted to make the point that that at no point does he actually kiss her so that sort of bond you know pussy galore aspect of you know winning her over I think it's more emotional than sexual I guess yeah yeah The score by Hans Zimmer, now freed of the shackles of having to collaborate with the emotional side of thematic music, James Newton Howard, goes from what might be his greatest score ever to what might also be his greatest score ever. And I mean that literally. He has just taken the Dark Knight score and reordered it with a piano theme for Catwoman and some chanting for the prison section. He leans on the end credits music to Batman Begins so often that I began to grind my teeth every time it turned up. It's the one that sounds like this. Basically, every time Batman shows up and he's Batman, Hans just goes, oh, I don't know, and presses a button and that starts up. It's as lazy as Alan Silvestri's quarter-arsed output on Predator 2. 
That doesn't mean it wasn't still fantastic, but if you really know music, and if you've been studying the score for The Dark Knight, which I had, it, it, you could just go, right, I remember that bit from there, and that bit from there, and that bit from there, and that bit from there. It's like 22 minutes before I heard something new! See, I'm not a score person, so I don't always take in, but I quite like this score, apart from towards the final, where they seemed to get the volume balance very wrong, and it was too loud. There's nothing to dislike about it. It's a great score. It's just, it's a great score that was great back in 2008. Although, obviously, with it being the third part of a trilogy, you do affect, you do expect some kind of continuation of it. The gradation and difference and elaboration and evolution of the score in Batman Begins to the score in The Dark Knight is very pronounced. Yeah. And this is more just a, a gentle glide sideways. Yeah. Sorry, No, that's pretty much where I was going. I was trying to come up with an example that would be basically the same sort of, yeah, the same main themes over and over again. I got about as far as Star Wars. Um, well, you see, no, because there are extra bits. A load there. of extra stuff in, in yeah. it. And, uh, yeah. Um, um, as far as scores go, uh, I am, as far as I can tell, I've never been, te- never had to test this out. I'm about as close as tone, uh, to tone deaf as you can be without actually being <laughs> tone deaf. But what I would say is, so for the music he uses, and certainly in terms of um, what we've just said in terms of actual looking at the music in depth. I, I can't really say much, but in the way the score is used, I did pick up a few things. Um, there's several key points in the film when you're witnessing stuff um, that, that Bane has a hand in, mm-hmm. but is not directly on the screen and won't be for some time after. Mm-hmm. And they start to build in, not the chanting necessarily, although that's used sometimes, but the drums that back the chanting, yes. the same rhythm. Yes. Yeah. Really, 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 really quiet, but they put it in there just to almost subliminally let you know that Bane's involved in this somehow. Uh, the yeah. key scene I'm thinking of is, um, at the time, you have no idea that Bane is involved um, in the cafe scene or the bar scene where uh, the fingerprints are exchanged. And then mm. they run out back into the alleyway and they start playing that drum beat very low and then start bringing in the, the chanting a little bit up gotcha. to the point, the explosion in the sewers. Um, and... And that's obviously foreboding what they're then going to find in the sewers. So um, it's kind of like the Joker's. Yeah, they, they, they definitely pick the chanting as uh, the the um, Bane theme, if you like. Um, yeah. And uh, I, I read an interview with Hans Zimmer where um, they were looking at what they were going to do for Bane, and he, they were, him and Christopher Nolan were talking about it being a primeval type of. Um, a theme for him because yeah. un- unlike the discordant uh, Joker's theme they wanted something that really fed into the the, uh, the strength and the power that this guy possesses um, and, and Hans Zimmer came up with the idea of a chant and Chris Nolan came back to him with two words which are um, Deshi Basara um, which is what's actually being chanted uh, it's Deshi Deshi Basara Basara but, but quite quick and difficult to pick up um, and apparently that's actually a language. And as of uh, like last week uh, when this interview was put up, um, no one has successfully worked out what language it is as far as Hans Zimmer could tell in this interview. Um, but he, he said that the translation that Christopher Nolan gave him was he rises, which is obviously yeah. exactly what Tom Conti says later in the film. Yeah. Um, and I really like the fact that when we're getting right into spoiler stuff here, when Bruce is climbing out the pit... Obviously, all the prisoners are chanting that. Mm. By the time he gets to the top, it, 
changes into the the, ba- the basically the Batman theme from from yeah, this trilogy, yeah. and from that point on, that chant is no longer Bane's. And I thought that was really interesting because by the time you get to the police officers standing face to face with with Bane and his his mercenaries, that is playing for the police officers because they've literally just risen out of the sewers and are rising to challenge uh, nice. Bane. And Okay, that is very clever. That's quite clever, yes. Yeah. So in terms of the music and how it's put together and whether it's I just cobbled... I did that that was one of yeah. the two, two new sections, but yeah. Yeah, so I, that's what I liked about the, the, um, the score. I think that's all I had noted down on it, but yeah. I've never been a huge fan of Marianne Cotillard. She wears this consistent expression like she's slightly disappointed with her chewing gum. She lent her character in Inception not only no sympathy, but managed to actually subtract impact from the tragedy of the heart of that film by volition of her selfish, unhinged character performance. And again, that may have been the script at fault, but once again, she blanded her way blandly through... The Dark Knight Rises, while I whiled away her time on screen waiting for the inevitable moment when she'd get eyes like a shifty traitor on 24 and reveal herself as Talia al Ghul, something I've been predicting since I heard about her casting. Unlike Neeson's Ras al Ghul, who seemed like a man deeply obsessed but bolted down and dangerous enough to carry out his micro-genocidal plans, she seems more like a Bond movie B-villain. In fact, there was a lot about Bond that marred both begins and rises. The ridiculous threat of a bomb-slash-microwave generator master plan to literally destroy Gotham seems so at odds with the Joker's psychological warfare and little nudges and threats and drums of gasoline to cause immense panic. But... Be honest, when Bane seemed all about social upheaval, he was so much more interesting than when it turned out he was all about blowing shit up. It's hard for me to think of her now in pretty much any acting position for Marion Cotillard as anything other than a fan fatale. Because obviously pretty much Inception was the movie everyone probably knows her from. Mm. And everyone's just like, she's a fan fatale, she's got this twisted mindset... So everyone pretty much guessed before anything that happened on scene that she was going to be the one that turns. Yeah. That Nolan used her for one thing to, to, as far as he was concerned, to great effect, then he'd do it again. Yeah. So I was... I really hope... I don't think she's that bad an actress, but she needs to find something to shift to, or she'll be known as a femme fatale for the rest of her career soon. I don't think she's a, a bad actor. In the grand scheme of actresses, she's yeah. nowhere near the bottom by any means. Of course, she's, she's, a, she's a good actress. It's just that, put her up against, say, Maggie Gyllenhaal. Yeah. You know, she, she's more in the Katie Holmes camp, which seems terrible to say, because obviously she's been Oscar-nominated. But fuck the Oscars. I hate the Oscars. They have no taste. <laughs> but I, I, that's what I was saying, because... Oh, what was the name of that film when she plays Edith Piaf? Uh, La Vie en Rose. I will see that, yeah, even though I'm not massively a fan of her. I do want to see uh, her. I want, to, I want her to be able to win me back over. I think that's the movie that might win her over because she's, she's very good in terms of the actual 
the craziness of the actual person in real life and how she kind of captures that. It is the hair and, and the teeth. <laughs> but what I said just now about uh, Bane being more interesting when he was about social upheaval and actually the, the notion that he was like this sort of firebrand that would start Gotham rising up and, and taking control. Wouldn't that have been more interesting if there hadn't been a bomb? Well, when you think he's the child that rose from the pit, mm. it actually makes his story really intriguing because he's it, his backstory is almost that he's been in this place that is without hope, mm. uh, or, or almost without hope, except for this you know ray of sunshine and the potential for escape. He fulfills that hope and therefore becomes the hope for the rest of the other prisoners. It's been done once, therefore potentially we could do it again. Mm. And yet what he chooses to then spread into the outside world is not hope is fulfilling, you can achieve, you know, you can reach your dreams and live in proof. Um, <laughs> he is beefcake, isn't he? <laughs> indeed. Um, but, what a coincidence. And yet, what, what he takes out is um, that he wants to destroy hope and crush hope, and that makes his story at that point really, really interesting. And when you take that element away from it, I think he loses a lot. Well, he becomes a, a henchman. It's unusual that that a villain would basically be about giving power back to the people and then kind of, not so much stepping back, but just sort of this whole, you know, Gotham is yours now! And all of that was fascinating. And then it's like, and I'm going to blow you up! And it's like, really? Are we going he back says, to that again? Is this thing going to get disarmed in the last ten seconds? Yeah, he says Gotham, he's, you know, giving Gotham back to the people and mm. all the rest of it, but does he ever actually do anything like that? I don't know, he's, he's I don't patrolling the streets was, with a militia, isn't I, he? I don't think that was ever really his intention, though. I think no. he, he says his, his idea is to, you know, give them a ray of hope that he will then snatch away from them. Mm. Yeah, that's abs- absolutely right, Sharon. He never, ever intends to give Gotham to the people. He is using that as the hope that he is giving them before mm. then blowing them from the face of the earth. What, you've got, what we've got to remember in this is Bane's role and uh, Bane and Tally essentially have the same motivation which is they want to see Gotham blown from the map and they want to torture Bruce and Gotham itself before doing that for, because of what Gotham has cost them this is the third time the League of Shadows have tried to take down Gotham and they want to do it as awfully as they can the thing I took from the movie is um Bane actually believed more in Ra's al Ghul's cause that more than Talia. He's more towards the thinking of things must be stamped out, whereas Talia is simply doing it for revenge. For her father, yeah. Yeah, yeah I got that too. Okay, uh, Neil on Talia. I hate her. <laughs> She's just... What? Why was she there? She's almost like Catwoman. This. There was a point to her being there other than that. It's Talia and it ties neatly into the first film. It's kind of like Palpatine, isn't it? When you yeah. respect, it's like we must find this hidden person, Stalia. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, the rumours even before the film started, it was all yeah, she'll be tied. We all knew that. I think it, I even said that back in you know several uh, episodes ago, and you sh- you shouted at me for spoilers, and I was like, I'm not spoiling anything. I don't know this to be true. It's just bloody obvious. Yeah, I've got a vague memory of some, some one of us getting shouted at for saying that because <laughs> someone was avoiding spoilers and we got in trouble, but it's. <laughs> It, the other problem is she... I had a conversation with James once about um, character motivations and the way characters act um, 
against character almost. She's Talia through. We at the end we find out she's Talia, but all the way through the film she's cowering and hiding away, mm. and she she generally tries to give off as air. I've been fear for my life, and it's like you wouldn't be. You know what's going on. You're the you know you're the one with the finger on the trigger. Yeah, yeah. So, but she is she is playing the act. Don't forget because mm. she still needs uh, the Wayne Enterprises board to trust her so yeah. she's been playing this act for years you know a good five years before the film starts she's been in Gotham living as Miranda and so, I know, same as Bane then she says one thing and does another and, I was, and as yeah. Sharon said about Catwoman she just exists for um, <laughs> I can't say it <laughs> for Bruce Wayne to put his do you want me in. to say it again <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you said about Catwoman she exists for Bruce Wayne to put a cock in well actually it tell you that there's that one in the Moose movie that made no sense this is a man you absolutely hate and despise. So I'm going to shag him. What I would say, I, I struggle to see her motivation in this because she's already got his trust. He has already shown her the machine and, and she's taking over his, his uh, company. She's already won in that respect. She, she's won Bruce over to, to where she needs him to be. Mm. Um, from Bruce's point of view, I think it makes more sense I, I didn't like it. I didn't like that they did it. It fell out of the blue, and on the back of having been kissed by um, by Catwoman, and then the kiss at the end, it did feel a little bit like, is this just everyone line up to kiss Bruce Wayne? Um, <laughs> but, yeah, Christian Bale had it put in his contract. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, how does it feel watching it repeatedly? Actually, now that because uh, I've only seen it once. Well, the important thing to remember is that at this point, the first half of the film has been to tear Bruce down. Mm. to tear everything and everyone away from him that makes him who he is and leave him with nothing but Batman to go to. Mm. Um, And at that point, he has literally just turned up to the house on the first day that that Alfred's been away. He realises that he has got nothing of the life. And he wants something around him, someone around him who he can trust and who he can put some faith in. in, And and she's there. And so, again... Romantic thought. Well, she's there, so he's looking for a kindred spirit and he's alone and and broken at that point, uh, emotionally. Um and so when she and again she kisses him. He mm. he's not kissing her. Well but, yeah, it's part of her plan, it would appear yeah. it's to seduce him as well. So I, I think it makes sense as to why Bruce at that point accepts that affection because he's got nothing left in terms of the people around him. Um, but it does feel out of place uh, on multiple viewings. There's, they don't develop that relationship enough to give you a feeling. They don't even clarify whether they've actually met before the point at the mask fall. Well, it sort of gives you an impression that he's been avoiding us. So I assume they hadn't met up until the time, you know, he decides to come back into the public eye. She was trying to see him, didn't she? And for those eight years. No. Yeah. But that whole, the whole scene where, you know, the, the relationship between them does develop to the point where they, they end up sleeping together. It, the fact that it is portrayed as so affectionate really strikes hollow later on when you, you find out who she is. Because, like you say, it, it, if her goal was to seduce him and, um, you know, earn his trust and all the rest of it and then bring him down, it, she didn't need to go into that much, you know, nicey-nicey. And I, I find it very difficult to believe that that would be something that she could, that she could or would bother faking. Mm. For best thing, I believe um, Nolan's looked at the comic Talia and sort of misconstrued something because in the comics Talia is obsessed with Bruce Wayne. She actually is yeah. in love with him, but it's totally one-sided. 
and she's yeah, she's desperately uh, clinging to the idea that he is in love with her, and she is his wife. Well, it's, isn't that connected with the notion that he he was supposed to be Ra's al Ghul's heir? Mm. Yeah. yeah. So for it to take it to in the movie, for it to take to the point of starting a relationship with him, it doesn't really work that well. No. The the first time I watched the film. Because uh, Gplex was the second time I've seen you it. You bastard. I, I guarantee like 98% of everyone in that. But just, just me and Sharon haven't seen I it. Think, I think it was a good half and of me. us that actually uh. seen it. Well, okay. I will say thank you to everyone who didn't mention it. Because that's all, you know, if, if you'd been going on about it beforehand, it would have driven me nuts. No, but I, it was honestly, it's, people, yeah. when I watched it, I really thought this would be an interesting one. Not to say anything, I want to see the reactions once it had been watched. But anyway, the first time I watched the film, and we were, and it said who she was, and we hadn't got to the end, obviously. I thought... Oh, maybe it's a nod to Damien. Yeah. That's the thing. I thought they were going to go down the route of she ends up pregnant with Damien. Oh, no. no I hate that. That whole aspect of the comics. Loathe it. Um, I, I suggest I, reading the new Batman and Robin because Damien's far more interesting. He's getting okay. better. Okay. Getting better. That's yeah. selling the hell out of it. So back to the whole thing about Bane turning out to be all about blowing shit up. That's what played in the back of a lot of people's minds when they compared this to The Dark Knight. It is too easy to say that there's a Joker-shaped hole. Ledger is painfully absent, and it feels all the worse knowing that if he had lived, then he would definitely have been in this film, and a, a significant part of it. However, there is something far deeper about The Dark Knight that is missing from Rises that I've been trying to put my finger on. A sense of straightforward conflict. Everything in The Dark Knight is made clear. We know the motivations of the characters, and by the end we can see the whole tapestry arranged in a way that feels like everything was required, including the fairies. In fact, especially the fairies. It's a film about sacrificing the ugly truth for a beautiful lie, to inspire hope for the greater good. And while that theme is paid off in Rises, the message becomes more convoluted as a result. And while I don't agree with the folks who say that this continuation blunts the teeth of the second film... It doesn't grab onto me and draw me into the conflict in the same way. Dark Knight is purposeful and precise. Rises occasionally, not always, and not in a way that makes it a bad film, just not the masterpiece that film two was, veers about like a drunken motorcyclist showing off. Dark Knight kept my heart in my throat before ultimately ripping it out of my chest by way of my adrenaline gland. Rises kept it in my ribcage, though it pounded for most of the duration. It's a concerted difference between excellence and near perfection. Ledger's performance as Joker is one big thing that I would point to as a, as a difference. I think Hardy is great as Bane. I think what he does with just a pair of eyes, and we'll get onto the voice at some point, I'm sure, um, it is, is actually pretty impressive. Um, Joker is missing. That's undoubted. The, the rumours were that, that Rises was going to be, uh, whether it would be in Call Rises or not, that's by the by, but it was going to centre, or it was going to at least involve, the Joker's trial and mm. events surrounding that, and obviously that would have meant a much more natural trilogy. What ended up happening was you get three films that feel completely distinct and thematically quite different. Yes. Um, yeah. And... What I would say is missing... Although Rises does bear a lot in common, specifically with the final third of Batman Begins. 
Yes, yeah, yeah, because the story beats follow on, and, and obviously the, the characters lead into that. But I still think that thematically, it's a, it's a at least a twist on that. It's not as simple as just following on from begins. And the other thing that I think is missing, and we'll probably get onto this, is you get a taste of it at the beginning of, of Rises, and this is what really I'm conflicted about is that. In Dark Knight, all the way through it, you've got Gordon, you've got Fox, and you've got Alfred as three people around Bruce who bring levity, who bring uh, just... Uh, uh, they, they, they sit around Bruce and, and they have their, their jokes, they have their banter with him, and they show a different side to him. The point of the first half of this film is to strip those people away from Bruce. Mm. And unfortunately, that means you don't get the banter for the last two-thirds of that film, pretty much. Mm. And it's a problem, but that's the story. So yeah. I'm conflicted because if that's the way the story's got to go, and it does have to go that way, you can't have Jim Gordon as an effective commissioner through this film because life's too easy for Batman. You can't have Lucius Fox as an effective cue, if you like, through this film. Because I've called a cue before. <laughs> Again, the Bond reference. Yeah. And yeah. people are saying, Nolan, do you want to do a Bond film? It's like, <laughs> well, I wonder where they're getting that from. But but you can't have him oh, there. Oh, guess who was originally going to be cast as Bond before Daniel Craig? Well, it's been mentioned, hasn't it? Christian Bale. Carry on, um, sorry, James. And you can't have Alfred there, because Alfred is the emotional support for Bruce, and that mm. has to be taken away from him so that he goes into that Bane fight desperate and alone and feeling like he wants to die, frankly. But he doesn't bring any gadgets with him. It was like he set off some like party poppers at one point. I'm like, seriously? You didn't bring any sonic batarangs, any smoke bombs, any anything? You just were going to go up against this guy pound for pound and hope for the best. He brought his smoke pellet thing and the, the magic I will turn everything off switch. Yes. Which I want. I want but, but at this point, Bruce literally does exactly as Alfred says. He wants to fail. And he goes into that fight knowing that in all likelihood he will not be able to take Bane and he wants it to be over because he's had everything stripped away from him. Bruce's story was always more interesting than Batman's and I'm so glad they focused on Bruce for this last tale. Bale performs with the same intensity and dedication as does Oldman. Lovett is a more than welcome addition filling the white knight armour of Dent and giving us a shrewd and emotionally complex new hero we can get behind. Kane, for his small amount of screen time, manages to be even better than he was in the first two, wrenching my heart and many others with his pleas to Bruce. Every bit the father figure this wayward child needed, and so rarely heeded. Alfred cuts into the soul of this film and makes it about Bruce fighting to reclaim a life that he has cast aside. And Tom Hardy had the toughest job of all. How do you follow not only the Joker, not only that Joker, but also that swan song? He would have, he would have to literally die to get the same credit. As it, stands, <laughs> as it stands, he manages to make Bane one of the most imposing and terrifying antagonists of all time. Not a contender for the number one slot like Joker, but definitely up there with Anton Chigar from No Country for Old Men, or Robert Mitchum's Reverend Harry Powell in Night of the Hunter. 
Alfred nails it with focusing on Bane's belief. There is such a sense of purpose and confidence and what the that what he is doing is the absolute necessary evil. That voice veers from amusing, like Raul Julia in Street Fighter, to horrifying, like Benicio Del Toro in Sin City. Always several levels too high, just like Batman, and with lips obscured and consonants muffled by his mask, often unintelligible. His physical form is barely human, and if you told me that I was watching that posh chap from Inception, I wouldn't have believed you. It's unfair to compare him to the Joker because Ledger was handed one of the most fascinating characters of all time, while Bane from the comics wouldn't even have made the top 100. But Hardy manages a palpable menace and a believable and genuine threat that frankly would have been better without relegating it to the status of a henchman to a Bond movie B-villain, making him the C-villain to a guy who died two pictures ago. They start off so well with him on the plane when he tells one of his men to stay and die to make their actions more clandestine. The nod of understanding that passes between them is frightening. The readiness this unnamed League of Shadows soldier has to lay down his life for this cause is something most of us are incapable even of comprehending. So it's baffling when Bane resorts to shooting a man who fails him in the gut and casting him away like Darth Vader. Surely telling him to jump into the sewer and perhaps die trying to find Gordon would have made Bane a more powerful commander. I like what they did with Bane in this movie. I, I'm not saying it's better than the comic books, I'm just saying it was a nice different take on it. I, I, shall we mention the voice now and get it out of the way? Yes, go for it. I liked the voice. I liked the way he came across as actually having charisma, despite the fact he is talking through that huge, weird face thing. But it felt like ADR. It felt like it was put in afterwards. Whereas you take something like the original Star Wars trilogy, Invader's voice, which is ADR, but never feels like ADR. Am I making sense there? I think that's because um, Darth Vader was stood there... Who was it who was the physical embodiment of him? David Prowse. Prowse. David Prowse. He was he was just stood there and usually with a couple of notable exceptions, very still, um, and then you just lay the voice over the top. Whereas Tom Hardy there was a lot of nodding, there was a lot of head movement that didn't always coincide with the words. Mm. There's also yeah. the fact that Darth Vader, whilst a human shape, you've not got a face as such. It's a Im- impassive plastic it's a mask. mask. Mm. Yeah. You could imagine a face going on underneath. Yeah. yeah. You know, like, original Bane is, you know, Hispanic and sort of Ricardo Montalban, you know, kind of voice, whereas this is a very slightly posh Englishman almost sometimes. It's, I've heard it compared Elements to Sean, Sean Connery. Connery, yes. But I think that helps to get across the fact that this he is more than just the bruiser. He is meant to be this leader. He is meant to be charismatic and charming. He reminded me of Daniel Plainview from There Will Be there Blood. There Will Be Blood. Yeah. I drink your milkshake. I am Gotham's reckoning. (laughs) (laughs) When you put it like that. Put it this way. It's a far cry from his performances. She's on. Hang on, she's on? Star Trek Nemesis. The clone of Captain Picard. Was that Tom Hardy? Yes, it was. You're kidding. No. Nope. The Romulan guy? Yes. You know what? That rings a bell now, now that you said that. I recognise yeah. his baby face. He's got, like, a baby face. How <laughs> does the, that chap... Oh, 
Either way, like I said, props to Tom Hardy, and he's, he's built like several brick shit houses built around each other. The now. scary thing is, he's bigger in this than he was in Warrior. Mm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it was a, a wise choice in this one to drop the whole Venom, Venom. aspect yeah. of it. Yes. Yeah. Um, well, they've not necessarily dropped it; they just never mention it. Well, <laughs> yeah. The, the yeah. is a huge bloke, so the mask is meant to be more of an anesthetic, isn't it? Because yeah. yeah, it's that seems to be what they were saying. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. I, I looked into more. this um, a bit, and as far as I can tell from looking through, uh, essentially, I started looking through spinal surgeries um, to see if I could work out what sort of um, injury he may have had and what sort of surgery then the doctor tried to perform. And the nearest I can tell is he's got scars down his spine on his back, but he's got one particular one down the back of his neck uh, that looks like a surgical scar. Uh, at, at least to me, you get a couple of glimpses of it. Um, as far as I can tell, he's supposed to have had a posterior cervical disectomy and fusion um, to repair what would have been uh, crushed spine uh, from the beating that he took. Um, the idea being to alleviate pain and presumably, although finding evidence of this i mean when you're having spinal surgery any number of things can go wrong presumably what's supposed to have happened is rather than alleviate the pain it's actually been made worse the the point being that the mask now covers his probably destroyed face um and is supposed to be injecting some kind of anesthetic which is why you hear the hissing noise when it becomes damaged at the end mm. um I didn't know whether it was supposed to be some kind of reflux mechanism, but there are there is piping running all around his head mm. and two disc-shaped objects at the back, but there don't seem to be any gas canisters or, or any kind of mm. uh, inhalation um, sort of canal at, at the back there to hold any kind of medication. Mm. Um, he's, he's very right. protective of that breastplate, though. It, there's a, a lot of times when I noticed yeah. when he stood still, he, he would put his thumbs in the, the edge of the breastplate mm. as if it yeah. putting them into braces or something like that. Yeah. And I did wonder whether maybe he, the... the um, there was some sort of anaesthetic canister under that that he's activating by doing that or just reassuring himself that it's still there or something like that. I think Steve. it must be the breastplate. I think I'm the only person who thought this, but I think the little silver parts of his mask were the, was the housing for the gas, but that's probably just me. It'd be a, a very, very tiny amount. But it's still, yeah. uh, again, it seems to have a lovely design, but without being very clear on the practicality, almost like Catwoman's mm. suit. It's, a, it's an interesting design, yet without the practicality being that clear. Because obviously the, sort of the little tubing on the front of the mask, make you, it, it's designed to look like a moor. Yeah, it's make you know designed to make him look more horrific than what he is, but with with you know it's maybe his character motivations aren't great, but he Hardy is awesome. Yeah, I, yeah. I, he's just fantastic, and like, and like I said, I think with this they they play him until the end. They sort of play him off as, and I really think they change. I I swear they they got the script on. Oh, we can't use that word. Let's call them mercenaries because I think the word they were looking for were terrorists. Really, oh, hands down. Yeah, this is. Absolutely, he is leading a group of terrorists. He he very much embodies um, some of the more charismatic dictators that we've seen around the world yes. in terms of that kind of um, inspiring, that kind of love that for fanaticism. him to the point where people will accept horrific ideals because they are attracted to his charisma. Um, the voice, there was only one line that the first time I saw it I couldn't quite make out, which was, I got I Am Gotham's Reckoning here yeah. to um, 
take back, and I couldn't quite catch the next bit, which was the borrowed time you've been living on. That was the only line I struggled with. Other than that, I loved the fact that people mention Sean Connery, but it's actually supposed to be an Eastern European uh, accent. And it's got this lovely, whimsical lilt to it. Um, In the plane scene at the beginning, when the the completely inept CIA agent asks him... (laughs) was this part of the plan the way he says of course is just brilliant he's just got he's he's almost mocking the guy he's I'd, got this really uh, sort of amused tone to his voice in several places i think what really works in that scene as well is the, the little bit later on when this, the the cia guy goes what ha- would happen if i take that mask off and he goes it would be very painful well you're a big guy i'm sure you can take it for you oh, no. yeah. and you yeah. just go Oh, that guy's kind of scary now. <laughs> Even though he's there handcuffed, you, you sort of lean back, don't you, and go, uh-oh, yeah. there's more to this guy than you think, and it, it works. He's very intimidating. And that's the scene where he's on his knees and handcuffed. Mm. I've, I've read one or two um, reviews of this where they've actually said that every word that came out of this guy's mouth got them in fits of laughter like he was hilarious which seems like it really was misjudged in terms of, of hitting everyone. I'm, I don't know how many people this has affected, but I don't, in the same way as the Nurse Joker never made me laugh at all, I, I didn't find Bane the least bit funny. But he's not That's, supposed to be funny. Yeah. I don't know why those people are, are finding it funny in all honesty, because th- there's nothing like the Joker where the Joker has this kind of really dark sense of humour about things. Um, Bane, no, absolutely not. He, he's got a charm, he's got charisma, but he's not funny at all, no. The only line I can think of that made me laugh was the, what a lovely voice. That was supposed to be funny, though. Yeah. 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 Hence the, uh, I think uh, Paul said that a lot of people were tweeting when the Olympic ceremony started, what a lovely voice! <laughs> Just quickly on that, I love that scene because... Um, at that point, you've got a large, not a large proportion, but a, a significant number of people from Gotham in that stadium. Mm. And the idea behind, or, or certainly the, the undertones of having, as often happens at sporting events, these kind of angelic children singing the national oh. anthem, is to be able to, um, for, for these adults, and, and with adults comes a notion of sin, to be able to um, convince themselves that they are not sinful by looking towards this angelic child and putting this angelic child at the centre of this stadium as the focus for all these people in order to alleviate them from the sin that they're supposed to have committed um, it, it is really, really powerful, I thought. And, and so Bane's What a Lovely Voice is a subtext of that. Mm. That's well, the way especially, I it, yeah. yeah, especially if you take into account Ra's al Ghul's rhetoric in the first one about how um, it's, uh, you know, well, sorry, it wasn't actually Ra's al Ghul who was saying it, but the whole thing about, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah and Gotham is like the next step of that. So it's, I suppose it's almost like saying they're not that bad. Look at what they can produce. But I, I thought the whole attacking the, the football game was actually really intriguing because the way it was juxtaposed with the um, uh, the downing of the um, the area around where all the police officers had gone, yeah. it almost seemed as though Bane was very specifically attacking their heroes. He goes for their football players, he goes for their cops, and then he goes for Batman. And it it just and the seemed like well. quite a neat little circle. Yeah, yeah, but um, that's it, he seemed to be very specifically targeting the the upright of Gotham. Yeah, the very good thing about that scene is also um, that everybody is using this football game to take their minds off what's currently going wrong in Gotham, and he just comes over and completely shatters that element of illusion. 
Yeah, he mm. pushes it right in their faces, doesn't he? Yeah. Although Paul did say that when he picks up the mic and starts going, oh, <laughs> the entire crowd sort of craned their left ears and gone, sorry, what? what? All at the same time. The other thing that relates to the choir boy is when Bruce's parents die in Batman Begins, the music is just a sort of low, threatening hum, and then James Newton Howard has a single, lone, plaintive, mournful choir boy come in, and that's the loss of Bruce's innocence as it trickles away from him at that point. So it's like that any innocence that Gothamites had at that point is ebbing away with that choir boy singing the national anthem there, and is gone by the time Bane blows the shit up out of the stadium. You are as precious to me as you were to your own mother and father. I swore to them that I would protect you, and I haven't. The mayor's gonna dump him in the spring. Really? Mm-hmm. But he's a hero, a war hero. This is peacetime. You think this can last? There's a storm coming, Mr. Wayne. Praising it is a harder job than checking off the criticisms because so much of what is good about this film is also present in the previous two that we've spent three and a half hours reviewing already. Cinematography from Fister was as superb as ever, and I believe he's doing his own solo projects now as a director. And Nolan proves yet again that he is one of the finest directors around today. It really does seem like an unbalanced review for me to be bitching about these little things every now and then. But I would ask you to take into account everything we have said about performance. Like I said, I didn't like it. Doesn't mean it's not a good movie. I think it is a very good movie. Narratively, it is more slapdash than Dark Knight. The structure isn't the perfect geometrical shape and there are pits and stumbling blocks, but it's absolutely cohesive with how Batman has progressed in this series. And I rarely found myself thinking this character or that character wouldn't do that. 
Gordon ordering all of the cops into an obvious death trap seemed unusual, and Bruce's attraction to Talia never quite convinced me, but these were brief missteps in an otherwise impressive dance. There were several moments when I realised that there was a subtle link back to something earlier in the series, and shortly afterwards, everybody in the audience who didn't get it yet was then treated to an explanation of the link and a visual flashback. This is out of step with the maturity and non-patronising nature of Nolan's filmmaking, so it annoyed me. And stop me if this sounds familiar. Film one, the hero sets out, learns about greater powers in the world, meets a big, shadowy bad guy and foils their plan, blowing up their technological terror in the process. <laughs> Film two, escalation, hero on the run, a great betrayal by a trusted ally, a sad ending leaving us unsure of the future but blown away by a measure of self-sacrifice, best one in the trilogy. <laughs> Film three. <laughs> oh, we're all caught up then. Film three. Resolution. Similar bad guy plan to the first one, foiled again by the returning hero, who blows up the baddie's technological terror to the applause of all present. Mega happy ending when it turns out that everybody survived, except the big shadowy guy in the breathing mask and the maniac at the root of the evil. Plus, <laughs> plus, it has the ghost of Liam Neeson. Yeah. It's Coming soon to a re-edited version of Return of the Jedi. <laughs> <laughs> Oh dear. That is a classical flow of a trilogy, and I'm not mm. ripping on it for that, but it's. It's it, Joseph it, Campbell. Hero with a Thousand Faces. Yeah. Yeah. It does seem churlish to expect less of what has been dubbed the Scooby Doo mega happy ending, but I was quite happy with Bruce sacrificing himself for the people of Gotham and being succeeded by Blake. I would also have been happy with a moment of ambiguity at the end, when Alfred looks into the camera for a long time and smiles, but we don't cut to Bruce and Selena enjoying a chicken in a basket. Yeah, would that have been too similar to Inception, though? Doesn't matter. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great shot at the end of Inception and bloody hell it would have been a great shot yeah, at the end true. of Batman That's the thing, because of Inception I was expecting him not to show Bruce yeah so maybe maybe he wanted to blindside us and go nope it's totally there <laughs> gotcha there are plenty of people out there who still believe that there is a lot of ambiguity about that ending yeah it's worth mentioning because yeah. Alfred has already said that he has a dream and mm. the ambiguity is, therefore, is this Alfred's dream or is it Alfred's reality? And the counterpoint to that is, but why would Alfred dream about Selina Kyle, the girl who nicked Bruce's mother's necklace and he knew very little else about? Because he just wanted to see Bruce with someone and she's a realistic... He was someone, she was someone that Bruce was interested in and, uh, in Bruce's own words, you're trying to set me up with a, a cat burglar now. You know? Oh, right. Okay, that's see, powerful. Can, that's Although, why would they go, but the autopilot, it was fixed. Fixed. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Bruce Wayne. Well, then the question becomes, at that point, does Bruce still want to die, or does he actually want to be allowed to live? I'm assuming the whole, Bruce wants to live from the moment he escapes the prison. And you know he's going to fail the first two times because there's no bats. I refer yeah. you to, I've not given them everything, not yet. Not yet, yeah. Yeah. For see, that, that line made me think, wow, they, they might actually do this. Mm. I think that line is in there to make you think they're going yeah. to do that. It's not a horrible ending, or even a bad one, although how Bruce managed to escape a nuclear blast is never to be addressed, just like how Gotham will suffer as a result of the fallout is never to be addressed. Well, there was no <laughs> guarantee he was on the, the bat or what, the no, wing, whatever they called it, yeah, as soon as it flew off. face when he was on the bat. And uh, true. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it was like four seconds before it detonated, and he was like, I should probably bail out sometime soon. 
Unless that yeah. was the question is, yeah, is, is that misdirection? Yeah. Was he actually in the bat or was he elsewhere remote? Who knows? It looks, it's very much meant to look like he's in the bat up to, as you say, Alex, four seconds before yeah. it detonates. There's Regardless. no doubt about that. The question is whether or not that's misdirection. If it is, it's kind of a bit of cheap misdirection. It is. Because um, it could have just been left out. Regardless, just like Han Solo dying in the explosion in the second Death Star, as was originally intended or suggested, it would have been more memorable had real blood been shed for a cause in a way that matched the resolve of Bane. Hmm. Oh, and as of now, nobody is allowed to say a storm is coming as a lazy metaphor for conflict. Oh. Terminator, Star Wars, Harry Potter, and now Batman. Not allowed anymore. Okay? It's, li- it's illegal. <laughs> no, it's a trope now. I think it's official to say. Yeah. She says a storm is coming. <laughs> oh, you mean like war? Oh, yeah, okay, that's very clever. <laughs> A tiny creeping element of the Spider-Man 3 cram everything in to finish her off syndrome did occasionally occur, most notably in the unnecessary inclusion of Catwoman and the Batwing. The Wall Street social commentary and the pointless MacGuffin of the clean slate could also have disappeared with no weakening of the overall story. The people of Gotham were also given short shrift and left wanting for humanity during the five-month annexing, almost entirely represented as they are by the militia, the resistance, and briefly, various looters. But it doesn't spiral out of control for any harmful length of time, and it's by no means the mess that Raimi's epic series of mistakes turned out to be. It doesn't have the momentum of either of the first two, and as Kermode said, it langers in the middle, and actually at other points throughout. But this does also give us time to appreciate the grandeur of the overall three-film arc. It doesn't always have to be going at breakneck speed. No, that's true. I wouldn't be surprised if there's a cut out there that's got maybe an extra half hour to it. Mm. Yeah, I think that yeah. there is some plot issues. There are only issues because I think certain scenes may have been lost to facilitate a shorter runtime. Yeah, yeah. the the time scale on, on it's never entirely clear. Yeah, the, you know, a, a glaring one is like Bruce has escaped from the prison and sudden appearance in Gotham. It apparently took him three to weeks in the first place. Yeah, mm. mm-hmm. and how does he get back home without any passports and stuff? I would imagine uh, it's been said uh, in the counterpoint to that particular question that, uh, it being Batman, he probably has some sort of system whereby he, you know, he knows how to get back to Gotham with absolutely zero resources. Lest mm-hmm. we forget, he spent a good long while, uh, some seven years, yeah. uh, in Batman Begins as a criminal without a passport or identification. With nothing, no wallet. Or, yeah. And, yeah, and they true. point to that in um, Dark Knight when he uses the same smugglers to get him in and out of a country that he has used previously. Uh, um, yes. So That's he true. does have a, still a network, in theory, of, of ways and means to travel around the world. Uh, that's... That it's makes entirely sense. up to you whether you think that's Nolan missing out that or whether Nolan's leaving it up to you to interpret that on the basis of what you've seen previously. Uh, again, I think it's probably just something that's probably on the cutting room floor somewhere, just a throwaway line or something. <laughs> Thank goodness I left that spare passport under a stone in... <laughs> yeah, it, it doesn't have to be something like that. You know, how did you get back? I have my ways. Just a line like that. I have my... What? (laughs) I have my ways. I have my ways. I think it is worth us talking about Blake for a little bit. Because he's ultimately the the, the future. He was the best thing in it, as far as I was concerned. Yeah. You know what? I'm finding it difficult to disagree with you at this point. You mean obvious Batman replacement was obvious? (laughs) 
Well, obvious doesn't necessarily mean bad. I mean, I, I no, thought the way he set him up as a character. Obvious, obvious Talia was bad, but only because she was played by Marianne Cotillard and had a really very... Oh, no, no, no. From the first trailer, I saw went, oh, Batman replacement. Right. But, but no, I think they did a good job of establishing his character and his drive. I like how John Blake is an amalgamation of Tim Drake, Jason Todd, and Dick Gregory. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. With a really terrible first name. Well, that's not really terrible, because ultimately he is symbolically Robin. Mm. That's actually, a, it's, it's better than him being any one of those three. But that's the equivalent of going, nudge, nudge, wink, wink at us. But like, what you've you got to remember, Neil, is that this is made for an audience, and some of the references to the comics are going to have to be a little bit obvious. Yeah, they wouldn't, I mean, they wouldn't know a Dick Grayson if it came up and bit them, frankly, most people. And to be honest, I would have been quite happy if they just left it as John Blake. I, I like the character. I think he's played fantastically again. No, it was a little bit kind of patronising of, hey, folks, guess who this guy is? Well, I would have, I really, if they just left it as John Blake, it would be like, no, because I think the big thing, the whole thing that's been running through the entire of this trilogy is the fact that these are Bruce Wayne films. They're not Batman films, they're Bruce Wayne films. And Batman is a symbol. And that's sort of how this film is trying to play out in its ending, is Mm. the fact that... The legend can live on beyond Bruce. Yeah, Yeah. Bruce is gone, but here's this other guy. Well, I mean, they say it it outright. Batman can be anyone. Mm. That's the point. And Bruce, throughout the second film, is searching for someone to take over his legacy. He tried it with Harvey Dent. It didn't work. He had to tell the lie. Now he... Alfred, I think, gets it wrong in in this film when he says, Gotham needs Bruce Wayne. I I know what he means, but by the time he says that, it's too late. Bane and and, um, Talia have already stripped Bruce Wayne of his ability to help. And what Bruce comes to the conclusion of is... Gotham still needs Batman. They still need that shining example that will last through the generations. Because once Bruce Wayne dies, his ability to help goes. Batman's mm. doesn't. Not even dies. Just gets old enough. Yeah, that, yeah. That He's got. I mean, he's got no or car. Poor enough. His yeah. knees. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, being Batman's a goddamn expensive business. And the only thing I would say about Blake that that irked me was him working out who Batman was. I think that's a little weak. When he started explaining that he knew who Batman was, I was almost sure they were going to try and play back to the kid in the narrows who Batman yes. gives his yeah. Joffrey. That's my thought too. Yeah, the I'm problem so is hair color. Yeah. Well, the problem is is hair color in that. But otherwise, at least it would have given you a slightly more credible reason. All he had to say was, "I had blonde hair back then." Yeah, exactly. But it would have given a cr- more credible reason for how he knew who Batman was. Yeah. Just that you have that look on your face. Mm. And it I think from nice from a look, I mean, that was, I think, Sharon and my favourite bit in the entire film. The funny thing is, it shows him throughout this film actually being a fairly good detective. Yeah. He could have um, worked it out. I think it's more of a callback to in the comments because... Uh, Tim Drake worked it yeah, out. Yeah, Tim Drake worked out that he, he was the only Robin who worked out that Batman was Bruce Wayne. Mm. It's yeah. sort of a reference to that. Yeah. And also it's, Jason Todd grew up in a, an orphanage, yeah. same as uh, Blake again. It's, he's an amalgamation of these various guys. Emotionally, it makes perfect sense, and I understand why you're saying that might be one of your favourite moments in the film, because emotionally that conversation between them is incredibly powerful, mm. and it's the conversation that brings Bruce back from his his self-imposed exile yeah it's just logically it rings a little bit 
hard, yeah. it's a little hard to swallow potentially. I, I think ultimately, if he'd gone into it a bit more, he would have said, and also, there's about six people in the entirety of Gotham who could bankroll being Batman. Ergo, <laughs> I, I looked at the other guys, three of them are so old, they might <laughs> kill over and die at any minute. Two of them are women, the other one's you. End of. <laughs> Ding dong, is Batman in? Uh, yeah. Uh, yes. <laughs> he, he does make the point, though, that it, it started out as sort of, you know, myths and legends amongst the kids and that they, they toyed with the idea that their mysterious, you know, that their benefactor, Bruce Wayne, was in fact Batman because it's like combining their heroes into one. Yeah. Mm. Um, and it's just that he was the only person who looked that little bit closer and thought, actually, that kind of fits. Yeah. Um, but um, but yeah, that that whole scene where he's he's sort of explaining that that he understands the emotional core of of what makes Bruce into Batman was absolutely superb, and it it does give that sense of um, the the isolated hero finding somebody who actually understands them and actually gets them and knows how they feel, and it's it's something that he failed to have with in the relationships with the the women that he has in this film the fact that it was there with Blake I thought was really quite key to the um, the way the character uh, evolved through this one it's kind of a shame that the franchise as a whole is you know probably looking at another reboot yeah the word, than... it, word around the campfire is they're going to reboot Batman by starting him off in JLA and in fact they're going to go for JLA before they do Green Lantern Wonder Woman or Flash which is if they do that, a bloody stupid idea. Oh, yeah, I, I, setting I up talk. essentially a new Batman at the end of this, it seems kind of a shame to not go with that. Mm. Then, even if it is with that. another director or whatever. But. but I said it before, this is a world where no other superheroes can exist. It, yeah. mm. So you can't use this franchise, and I think this franchise should be left to go. Again, I mm. hate the ending of this movie. I do not like it at all. How would you? But I'm happy it, yeah. with... It's more, again, it comes down to me being the comic book Batman fan, mm. not the Nolan Batman. This is clearly Nolan's Batman. And I'm fine with that. And again, like I say, this is not a bad movie. This is a good film, and you should watch it if you've watched the previous two. Sharon did say, actually, that uh, the Batman that she knows from the animated series and the comics wouldn't even have accepted the lie at the end of the Dark Knight. He He'd have said, no, we tell them the truth, and yeah. we weather the storm. Yeah, he wouldn't have except for the lie, he wouldn't have disappeared for the eight years. Mm. Alfred would never, ever have walked out on him. Well, he no. has done several well. times in the comics, but... I, I haven't read years. those, but then again, to be fair, <laughs> you can't read everyone. But the Alfred no, would never have done that. You no. know? Although, from the sounds of it, he may actually have done. But carry on. I, I'm, I, I, can ex I would have been more willing to accept if they'd chopped that last bit off, maybe I would have liked it more if they'd left it well, out. Well, hang on. Unless, did he walk out pre-crisis? Which version of Alfred? No, yeah. Stop. No. Uh, don't go uh, down that road. But you okay, your during Back to the Future. This pre-crisis stuff makes me insane. But, you know, if they'd left it as Batman had given his life, I could have bought that because that's the feel from Batman. Batman would give his life. If it meant to save the day, he would give his life. Mm. Whereas that, he just quit. It feels like he goes, yeah, I'm done now. And he leaves Blake with no mentor, no resources, no training.
I, I've been very good during this podcast. I've not been going at the nitpicks. Do you want me to give you like a five minute nitpick? <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> okay, right. Um, ready? Go. First one. The FCC would not let Bruce go bankrupt. The minute they would stop all... Tr- they would look at the thing and go, right, okay, terrorists broke in, took over. All trades for that day, null and void. So Bruce wouldn't have lost the millions. You know, that, that bugged me. And like, I joked about it a minute ago, but the healing power of rope. The guy's spine was out of place. That requires serious fucking surgery, not rope and being punched. <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> the healing power of punching. It sounds like something from Cards Against Humanity. <laughs> it does. What, essentially what happens is he suspends him from the... with a rope from the roof. And taunts him. Don't forget and, the taunting. And taunts him. And pretty much whacks him so hard in the back that he puts his... Vertebrae uh, back in place? Yes. See, my theory was that Bane didn't break his back quite as much as he did in the comics. Just put yeah, a yeah, vertebrae out of place. All. I think it's supposed to be a dislocated vertebra in that case, yeah. and therefore, uh, uh, yes, doing it by punching it might not be the most sensible way. But <laughs> look what where we, we are. <laughs> also, I think there was supposed to be a bit of an implication that a lot of it was psychological, um, mm. and and that, to be fair, there is often a, a very very big element of that in spinal injuries because the the process of getting up after a severe back injury is so painful that you don't want to. You don't want to be better because you don't want to stand because your body feels like it's going to hurt too much. So it, okay. ke- it almost keeps you paralysed longer than you should be because it's it's too frightened to um, to risk the pain. Right, we're, we're eating into Neil's rent time. Um, <laughs> you've still got three and a half minutes left, Neil. Go. Uh, the one thing I don't nitpick is actually that no one works out that Bruce Wayne was Batman dying sort of thing because the amount of people that probably died during the the month mm. four months oh, five yeah. months. I mean, all the rich people probably died exactly, too. especially all the rich people being exiled. And also, Batman was going to turn up again in like a month's time or so, a slightly different body build, but definitely Batman. And I think people would just go, "Oh, he's uh, he's been working out." <laughs> it clearly wasn't Bruce clearly Wayne. Wasn't Bruce then Wayne. there goes our theories. <laughs> Uh, I also don't buy that the US government would do nothing. Mm. It would be like The Rock, wouldn't it? They'd send yeah. in Sean Connery to versus Mega Sean Connery. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, I, I really don't, don't you mean think... Mecha Sean Connery? <laughs> 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 Mecha Streisand! Carry on, carry on. Uh, you, you, I, I really feel that the US government would do more than, do more than send three really shitty special forces guys that run out and get shot! They weren't that special. They, they were rather incompetent. Two minutes. Uh, and, uh, I'm done. I, you know what? Uh, like I said, Neil, I, yep. I think there's one thing. I heard you talk about it at Gplex. They wouldn't send every single last police officer. Yes, you wouldn't send every single police officer in the force underground at one time. You would do it in stages and shifts because it's just not that practical. My Even theory the, is that Gary Oldman said send everyone. Bring me everyone. Yeah, they, they, they just didn't want to argue with him. They were hanging on the principle that no other crime was going to occur. <laughs> in the while oh, yeah, they yeah, yeah. That, was the other, that was the other one. Razzle Gold wanted to destroy Gotham because it was a, a, a hive of scum and villainy. Mm. <laughs> it's, it's been eight years and it's 
apparently a very nice place to live now. Peaceful, lovely. Mm-hmm. Um, and he tackles this by sending in hired scum and villainy. Mm. And then really fucking it up. I think basically well, no, the whole plan appeared to be to, to say, look, we'll give these guys five months to show that they can actually be civilised, and they didn't do that. Not no, really. he had no intention. He was blown no. up. It? No. No. But he was going to blow it up either way. So. Gotham was only involved to get to Batman and Bruce. Mm. Yes. By that point, I think, yes. Yeah, yeah it's simply like, a revenge plot. Yeah, I, I have one small nitpick to add, actually, and it, it mm-hmm. links in with the, the crappy CIA guys. Um, when they went up there to talk to Lucius Fox, and Lucius Fox explained to them the whole purpose of this, you know, what this fusion bomb had become and what was mm. going to happen, there's a point where he pauses and Blake interrupts him and says, now listen, because this is the important part. <laughs> what? <laughs> a... Weren't You're you listening before? Because I think what he was saying up to that point was pretty important. Yes. And B, if you have to tell CIA agents which bit of the this is how the bomb blows up is important, how good are they at their job? Not very. Not also, indeed. blood transfusions don't work that way. <laughs> There's also the the new Wayne Manor. Like get him to spit in his mouth. Wait. Oi, oi. I know it's up the road. road. It's up the road. Um, by the way, they knocked a wall down by accident. That's funny. What? Hang down. on. The new, the new Wayne Manor. Wayne, yeah, Wayne Manor. Manor in this one is not the same building as in the others. Well, not because it got fact, blown up. Well, he said he was going to rebuild it exactly the same, but with a Bricks few modifications. Yeah, it's they, not the same building. It's not. <laughs> it's well, it's literally Walton Hall, which is down the road from me. Oh right. Like, it's it's, it's, not, it's in it. Nottingham. Uh, we should go there. There's a cave out back. We've got to go spelunking in there. Oh, they are also, we... at some point, going to do a screening of Dark Knight Rises at Woolerton. Nice. So going to that. Oh, if nice. I can find out when it is. That would be cool. Let me know, Paul, and I'll go. Yeah, because all three of us actually live not too far from there. Isn't there a village near Nottingham called Gotham? Yeah, we drove past it the other day. Yes, there is. I tried to take a photograph of it. It was quite blurry. <laughs> it's quite funny. Uh, also... Uh, was I the only one that was disappointed in the new Batcave? Because it yeah, went on about going, it's going to be brilliant, plan, and brilliant and brilliant, and it was interesting. A, a computer on a platform. Yeah. It's under the water. Yeah. yeah. His, <laughs> his waterproofing's pretty good. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I, I would still love to wander into this village near Nottingham, get this, um, uh, make myself a megaphone, and go, I have got a record in how many people do you reckon have been doing that? <laughs> <laughs> Any place called yes, Gotham. you and everyone else. Yes. <laughs> the punishment must, must, must be more severe. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, right. So, anything else on Batman, The Dark Knight Rises? I, I would like to say that I have been very vocal about the things that I didn't like about it. There was an awful lot that I did like about it. Um... It's just that that's a lot more difficult to put into words when everybody's slating it around me and I'm trying to remember what exactly I liked about it. But, we need to um, give James and I sort of finish off to, <laughs> to polish so. its knob. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's also the fact that most of us have only seen it once or mm. twice. <laughs> so I will say, I will say opinions this. will change. Mm, I, yeah. On the second viewing of it, I did enjoy it a lot more. Again, this is why I, I, I need to state that as much as I didn't like the ending and I have nitpicks, I still think this is a fantastic film and people should see it. 
You just don't like it. Yeah. <laughs> it's not that he wants to win a better or anything. No. no. <laughs> I'm not winning that bet. There's no way this beats the Avengers. I you think? think? I don't. I think the Avengers was. I think well, I want to watch the Avengers again and again and again. I'm frankly at the moment not massively fussed about seeing this a second time. I've got to admit, I'm a bit Batman Dale. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, Amen. No, I can say. I can say honestly. I didn't like bits of this film, but I still think this is a good, good movie. I understand pretty much all of the complaints that, that I've, I've heard. And what I've got to say is that as a completion of a trilogy that is about themes that, as far as I can tell, no other director has the audacity to tackle in mm. anything remotely approaching this kind of level of, of mainstream film... Mm. I respect Christopher Nolan immensely. He tackled terrorism. He tackled the the 99% uh, Occupy sort of movement. Um, He he put in in Bane, uh, into Gotham, a a dictator, and as I've talked about, the charisma that he had, but also brought out throughout this entire story um, echoes of and pretty specific references to A Tale of Two Cities, um, which astounded me that you can take a Dickens story about civil revolution in Paris and turn that into a Batman story. Um, the the uh, reading that the Oldman gives at the end as, as Gordon at, at Bruce's funeral is from A Tale of Two Cities, and I actually looked up the extended passage, and it speaks so closely to what, he, what Bruce's journey has been through this film. Um, I think it's pretty incredible that... Um, that this film is an allegory for a, a Dickens novel written however long ago and still manages to include an awful lot of references. I've got a page's worth of references to uh, things about Batman from TV and, and comics that were included here, just as nods. You wouldn't pick them Go up in all honesty. Um, okay, Alligators in the Sewer. That was Killer Croc. Yep. Yep. Um, sit back, you're in for a show tonight. Almost word for word from The Dark Knight Returns, as the old police officer says to the young police officer when he realises Batman's back. Um, uh, red phone and a bronze head in Bruce's study when he's talking to Blake. Oh, yeah. seriously? Yeah. But again, just there, no nods to it, no awkward, you're the man from Edward Norton, get, get over yourself. Um, <laughs> it's a just in there for people to notice if they want to, if they don't, not a big deal. It's not referenced as being a hotline to anyone. <laughs> Sorry, carry on. Um, Roland Daggett, um, that character is actually the creator of... I Clayface. Don't know, Renew Wolfie. You, yeah, the, the, the substance that makes Clayface. Yeah, make Clayface um, yeah. The red helmet and black jacket. Yeah. Of uh, Spain is the Red Hood. Sharon knows that one. Yeah. Yep. Um, the sniper, um, the guy who, who and who's also the guy who drops Bane off to the CIA in the beginning, he's sort of yeah. like second in command in... in kind of dead shotty? Uh, well, the sniper was kind of a, a reference to Deadshot, but the character's mm. name is actually Barsad, which is a character in Tale of Two Cities. Oh. Um, Philip Striver is also a Tale of Two Cities character. Well, Striver is at least. Um, May I just interject because I uh, noticed this while I was reading through a list of mm. Easter eggs in the entire trilogy. First Batman begins when Bruce is pretending to be drunk and he's trying to get everyone out of Wayne Manor quickly yeah. before Rachel Gould burns it down. He goes, no, please, you, you two-faced friends. I never caught that before. Yeah, the prison pit is kind of, not strictly speaking, but it's kind of a metaphor for the Lazarus pit. Um, yeah. And 
I did. I was. I was watching. It, I was like, "That's just like the uh, well he fell into at the beginning. That's brilliant." And then they showed the well he fell into at the beginning. I was like, "Yeah, okay, right, cheers." Just in case you folks. I, th- I think what you've got to bear in mind is that there are people who will watch this film who haven't seen Batman Begins. They're not making films just for you. I, I love the fact well, that no one but- trust in his audience, but. There are also people who will have only seen Batman Begins once and not since it came out and are now watching this. At a certain point, you do have to put some flashbacks in there. It would be nice not to, but... It's subtlety that actually doesn't yeah. necessarily majorly serve the plot and makes the film better if you don't make it spelled out. I'm not going to, I am not going to accept appealing to the lowest common denominator as an excuse for this. No, no, absolutely Sorry. not. But I think oh. the aim of those flashbacks was to create a sense of nostalgia, not yeah. necessarily as exposition or just in case you missed it, here's a here's a clue as to what happened previously or a reminder. I think it was supposed to be as much nostalgia as anything. Um the final point I would make is the the main theme of a tale of two cities um is about Paris uh, and and the the um the general populace feeling social injustice and rising to form a mob and how that social injustice uh, is lost to effectively the terrorist actions of this mob as they start to gain steam. And that being the central way in which Bane chooses to torture Gotham and the people of Gotham, I think it's really, really well done. Um, I understand that it seems like he's got one plan and then changes up for just blowing the place up, but the the plan is always to blow Gotham up. The point is to torture the people of Gotham and specifically Bruce, who's supposed to be watching all this, lest we forget, um, and to show that he is going to tear down because all the all the people that he chooses to target, he sees as corrupt. The point is, even though Gotham has technically seen prosperity since the lie started, they are living under a lie and corruption and disparity between rich and poor still exists. It's just organised crime that has gone. So Gotham still, in Bane and Talia's eyes, needs to be uh, needs to be shown as an, as an example of what will happen if you allow that amount of corruption to, to spread through your city. Mm. Um, so thematically, uh, I think issues of terrorism, issues of, as I've said, Occupy, are handled incredibly well in, in in terms of the craft of making this film and the themes put into it, yes, we've talked about whether certain characters work, whether certain moments work, but thematically and with what I talked about with the music and with the cinematography backing it up, it is an incredibly powerful message to send in a film that is going to make more than a a billion dollars at the box office. It may not top Avengers, but Avengers was a fun movie that I will happily watch time and again that does not come close to addressing issues like Nolan is is looking at in in this film. I'm not even going to suggest whether or not I think it therefore is better or worse or otherwise. I just respect the fact that they're managing to put these sort of themes out there in this film. And when I compare it to other superhero films, maybe X-Men 2 tackles racism, but it seems, in all honesty, childish by comparison to what Nolan's done with these three films. Mm. And I maintain that this film continues that. It may have problems, but it continues that that trend, and I love the trilogy as a whole. I struggle to think of a trilogy I prefer to this.
still better than most comic book movies and preferable to a lot of people over either or both the first two in the Dark Knight trilogy. As a loose adaptation of The Dark Nightfall Returns to No Man's Land, it could have been a spectacular wreck. Instead, it is a powerful, if dented, locomotive that manages a fitting end to Nolan's Batman and just about manages to maintain its grip on reality in the process. I love that there is this much beneath the surface to be able to find and deconstruct it. The whole thing about the Tale of Two Cities, I hadn't read that into it. I am not familiar with the story. To that end, I'm a Philistine. <laughs> but it is un- indisputable that this film has so much more going on than most others, especially of this genre. I think it elevates the genre so much that these mm. are very important films. Like I said, didn't like it, but you know what? I won't deny it. It's good and it's important. And massively, it is. It has already been massively influential and will continue to be so. Yes. And I feel very, very, very sorry for the director that has to follow this. Mm. Mm. Although somewhat envious on my part as well. <laughs> <laughs> I think the notion of um, of being able to do something like this with the this specific genre um, is quite specific to Nolan as well. Um, that. I think I can't remember who I it was or where I read it but somebody made the comment about um, the prestige I like a good sci-fi movie as much as the next person just give me a heads up that that's what I'm watching and they didn't like the fact that basically they'd been fooled into thinking that this was not a sci-fi movie and then that was what it turned out to be there's uh, quite a bit of quantum theory in there uh, but I, I he, he you know if you're gonna if you're going to do something uh deeper and unexpected with the genre then he has earned the right to do that as far as I'm concerned and he does an excellent job with it. Well okay that concludes the Dark Knight trilogy and that concludes our discussions on the Batman films join us next week for a deconstruction of possibly the greatest Batman audio drama ever laid to MP3 (laughs) (laughs) I am up against the BBC with this one Yeah, we can cream them. And in the next few days, I will be publishing as much footage as I can harvest from our time at Gplex. So listen out for that. So I'd just like to thank all of my guests today, and you have been exceptionally patient as usual. James Carter of Kane and Rince, thank you so much for coming on the show. And Not at all, thank you for having me. Elevating the deconstruction and, and giving us... I, I, I don't think any of us would have actually talked about The Tale of Two Cities otherwise. Not at all. <laughs> I've got a couple of comments about megaton bonds and, uh, bombs and yields and blast radiuses as well, if you like. Um, <laughs> too, mu- too much uh, research, clearly. Can you just tell me if that was the kind of bomb that actually would have a radiation wave? It's a fictional bomb. It, 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 w- it would have a radiation wave, absolutely. Uh, the blast radius and the yield are, are about comparable to what they should be. Six miles and, um, and four megatons is about right, as far as I can tell. Would it poison the water of Gotham Harbour? Uh, yeah, the fallout's going to be a big deal. Uh, but in terms of deaths, it was far enough offshore to obviously include any, any deaths. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And Neil Taylor of Game Burst. <laughs> How do I follow that? Hang on, let's just go back. Neil Taylor of Game Burst and KDS 2.0. Thank you very much again. Don't forget Desert Island Gonzo. Neil Taylor of Game Burst, KDS 2.0 and Desert Island Gonzo. You can't have three shows, that's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. 
Okay, um, thank you very much for coming on, <laughs> Thank you for having me. Can I just do a quick appeal? I am asking people if you took photos or videos at uh, Gplex. I would like your help. I'm working on something at the minute. I need as much content as I can get my hands on. Just nip to the forums, the uh, Gplex thread, and uh, you can see how to help me out there. And from Gonzo Planet, Jerome McIntosh? No problem. Paul Gibson? Um, can I send a message out as well? Yeah, um, sure. Even if you weren't at Gplex at the weekend and you would like to donate something to GamesAid, then the don- donation page is on the front page of Gonzo Planet as well. Of course, it's on the way. I'd appreciate Were you rattling a collection? Yeah, that sounded like you had the money. <laughs> that, was awesome. that wasn't me. <laughs> that must have been somebody else. But yeah. Sure and sure. <laughs> Thank you for having me. No problem. Uh, I've got some high heels upstairs that you can. <laughs> They're not mine. And who's telling me? Akila Edwards. Thank you very much, mate. It was awesome. Cool. Okay, right. So, see you next week for the making of Batman Breakdown and a celebration of Gplex 2012. And we're going to close out as usual on some of Hans Zimmer's score. See you soon. Good night. Shadows betray you because they belong to me.